In the name of the Lord Jesus, it is quite a delight to see so many visitors with us this morning, wherever you are from, and however it is that the Lord brought you here, we are grateful. <clears throat> and uh, thrilled to see Dan and his lovely wife. If you have a cell phone, if you of us don't, would you please check it now and make sure it's on mute so that we can work through our message this morning, at least without that disruption. Uh, If you are here this morning with uh, little ones, and if you're visiting with us, our folk know what to do if our little ones need to be quieted down. They're in training, and so we expect that there are going to be times throughout their early life when they exit this room by the power of their parents to uh, learn how to be quiet. And they're learning, and it is delightful. I've said before, and I don't mind repeating, that uh, when you are in a pastorate for a long time, it is a great delight to see those little ones brought new from the hospital and uh, to grow up uh, under the preaching of God's word, the singing of the songs of Zion, to be around men and women who love Christ uh, instead of being shuffled off and brought back sometime later, sometimes even uh, into their teens before they rejoin their parents. Uh, We are delighted that our little ones are sitting in the laps of their parents, often in the laps of their fathers. I delight to see that. However, if your little one needs to be quieted, you can just go right through that gray door at the back of this room and... uh, you probably entered in that, uh, that particular place when you came in this morning. And uh, we have a large screen so that you can follow the sermon. And uh, please feel free if they, they quiet down, please bring them back in. Uh, it's not a place of being banned. <clears throat> it's just a place of training. We also have a nursing mother's room there for any of you that may have need of that. And I think, yes, I see people back there that would know exactly where to point you uh, to that room if you need it. Okay, if you would open your Bibles this morning to the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews. Children, I remind you the word epistle is just another word for letter. This is a letter, and this particular letter is an unusual one. It doesn't follow the form of most of the letters that we find in the New Testament. It is, uh, at least in the opinion of most, uh, that this is a sermon that uh, has been put into form and circulated among the Lord's people. He does say near the very end in the last chapter that he has written a letter to us. And uh, I delight to hear him say that that this was a short letter with 13 chapters. It's my kind of short. 
So we're going to uh, read just chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 today. I have, since we began, uh, read the whole portions that we are working from, but uh, for time's sake this morning, uh, I want to focus simply on verses 13 and 14. So now that you are comfortable and settled, would you please stand with me one more time? And we will give our attention to God's holy word. Brethren, we are in the presence of God. May he make that known to us. And may our hearts grow still before him, even rejoicing in him. But let us be aware that God is here. And we want him to move in our midst. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. But to which of the angels said he at any time? And the he there is God. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. Please remain standing and we will pray. My Father, I praise thee this morning that thou hast given us thy Holy Son, to be our intercessor, that our weak and feeble prayers come to thine ears. Thou dost hear us because Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us. He's never too busy to hear us. He's never overloaded with the cries of his people, but delights in hearing us and making our prayers a gospel incense that brings blessed and heavenly odors to the king on the throne. O God, our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. How we magnify thee today, our great creator. The heavens declare the glory of our God. And we thank thee for this beautiful day that thou hast given us, thou hast granted us by thy grace. And I pray that it will be as glorious in our hearts by thy presence as we delight in it outside. O God, thou art our great Redeemer. Thou hast provided for us in thy holiness in thy mercy, in thy grace, and in thy love, full and free salvation in Christ Jesus. Come by thy presence today, O Lord. Come, O Holy Spirit. Fill thy temple. Fill the living stones of thy temple here this morning. May we be the house of prayer. May we and all of thy true churches across the face of this world today, may we all with joy and thanksgiving 
Or Lord, if we can't even lift up our eyes, may we even come with downcast heart, crying to Thee to lift us up. O God, Thou art our strength. Thou art our Redeemer. Save Thy people. Bless Thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Oh, may the joy of the Lord grip our hearts today. May the sobriety, may the solemnity of the presence and power of God fill our hearts. May we see our sins. May we repent of them. May we see them washed away in the blood of Christ Jesus. And may we delight in our Savior. Oh, may thy presence fill us with gladness, fill us with awe, fill us with true worship. Father, here is thy blood-bought people. Again, for all of thy people around this world, we pray for all of the saints, and we pray that we might draw near to thee so that thou wouldst draw near to us, that we might enter into true, heartfelt worship. And may it all be to thy great glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Seated at God the Father's right hand, our Lord Jesus Christ sits enthroned. He rules in splendor. He is all present. He is all knowledge. He possesses all power. He has All authority. He is manifest glory. Jesus Christ, the resurrected, ascended, and enthroned God-man is the most exalted monarch in the universe. There is none like him. Otherworldly beasts Elders and millions upon millions of angels praise, worship, and adore Him with all their might. Nobody's holding back. No half-hearted praise in heaven. It is hearts on fire for the presence of God's holiness and His magnificent love. There is and there never has been, and there never will be anyone exactly like the enthroned Christ in all creation. As Samuel Rutherford says, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. For the sight of him 
the regenerate man or woman or child's heart beat. I want to see him face to face. Christ alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Question. Do we think about him that way? Do we think about him as he is? Or has our flesh and the siren sounds of the world drawn us to have little thoughts of him? Do we love him as he is? Or have we made him our puppet? Have we made him our gopher? Do we obey him as he is? It's one thing to say, oh, I think he's marvelous, splendid, magnificent, great. And run yourself out of adjectives. But it means nothing if you don't obey him. Nothing whatsoever. Do we think, do we love, do we obey him as he is? Christ's people should. Christ's people can. And it is joy to all who have been born again to do so. But there's more. In verse 3 of this chapter, the Holy Spirit joins Christ's priesthood with Christ's kingship. Jesus, as we will see, is our great high priest. The verse says, when he, Christ, the risen Christ, had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. First part of the verse, his priesthood, cleansing us, purifying us from our sins. And then he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's his kingship. No one will make it to that throne. Only Christ did. Only Christ could. And he will be ever seated in splendor and glory. Now the theme of a God-sent deliverer who is a priest and a king, runs throughout the scriptures. We have mentioned that previously. We will unfold more of that later on. But we want to get in our minds one of the, the themes that runs through this extraordinary sermon is the deliverer as priest-king. We see this displayed with clarity in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. 
Verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, in the Hebrew that's uh, Yahweh or Jehovah said unto my Adonai, my Lord, Sit thou at, the, at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In other words, there's a war going on. God the Father approves of this war. And it will be won by Christ. And whether we see it or not, whether it seems beyond our ability to comprehend or not, he's conquering his foes now. They will not take one step that he does not permit. And when he's ready to be done with them, they will be done. There isn't any other possibility. We serve a victorious Christ. We serve a triumphant king. Now verse 4 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important? Why do those two verses figure into the epistle to the Hebrews? It's because the Holy Spirit uses the theme of priest, king, king, priest throughout the sermon. He has a thread that runs all the way through this wonderful letter. So our message is entitled, The Royal Priest at God's Right Hand. Royal, pointing to his kingship. And priest, that glorious work of salvation. That's who's seated in heaven. And the author of Hebrews uses it as an argument to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. <clears throat> so may our gracious and loving Heavenly Father open the eyes of our understanding that we might know, love, and obey Jesus, our great King and Priest. And may the Spirit of God delight our souls with Christ Jesus. Push all the clutter of the world out of your heart. And let it be that glorious region where Christ alone reigns. So the first thing to consider this morning is this. The importance of the Davidic covenant. Now what we read doesn't seem to be related to David. His name's not mentioned. <clears throat> but the author of Hebrews said in verse 2 of chapter 1, For unto which of the angels said he, God, at any time, I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to any angel. But he did say it to David. And it has a very important impact, not only on all of the New Testament, but especially here in the sermon or letter to the Hebrews. Now, we have learned that God made an astonishing promise to King David. And the Davidic covenant is an important foundational theme that runs through the letter to the Hebrews. To better understand it, let us consider first the development between the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. I remind you, while the letter to the Hebrews is in the New Testament, it is a new covenant document. It is filled, it is overflowing with Old Covenant scriptures and references and plain statements about the covenants of God. We cannot truly grasp and understand the story of the Bible unless we understand the unfolding of God's promises, even of God's threats in the covenants. So we're going to do some dot connecting this morning because it's vital for the passage we're looking at. By the way, when I do these things, it's not simply because I think, oh, this is interesting, let's try this. It's because I want you to read the Bible better. That's simple. I want you, the scripture says, in all thy getting, get understanding. Until you start putting the dots together. You can read the scriptures. I'm certainly not saying you can't get truth from them. But you will begin to miss the flow of God's story. God tells us a story, not in the sense of a lie. My mom used to say, don't you tell me a story. She meant, don't lie to me. <clears throat> but when I use those terms, I'm saying, God has given us an extraordinary narrative that begins with, in the beginning, God. And then we have God's story that comes to its glorious Glorious manifestation in Christ Jesus the Lord. And it's true. Now, most of us would just have to admit, if you've tried to slug it all the way through in a year, the Old Testament, some of us get, as I said the other day, we don't get any further, further than Leviticus or some of the other Old Testament passages. What in the world do we do with Zechariah? What do we do with some of the things that are in the scripture? Why in the world is Song of Solomon in there? But all of these books are different ways, different forms of literature, narrative, laws, teaching. And we could go on and on. There are covenants here. There are numerous types of literature through which God, by his human authors, expresses his eternal covenant of redemption, his eternal purpose to save his people, every one of them, from their sins. So, 
Let's talk about the development between the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant. For just a few moments, this is a very interesting commentary on verse 13 of chapter 1 in Hebrews. God declared to the serpent who had deceived Eve in Genesis 3.15, he said to the guilty couple, both Adam and Eve, but he speaks to Eve, I will put enmity between, uh, to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Number one, Satan has a seed. That's a multiple term. That's a plural term. He's got his children, and he has from that time in every generation those that walk according to the lies of this world piped to them through the powers of darkness. But God says, I'm going to put enmity. There's going to be hostility between thee, O serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Oh, the woman has a seed, and has a seed that's been uh, growing, developing throughout the ages. And it came to its most glorious consummation in the Lord Jesus. Born of a woman, made of a woman, made under the law. So, God goes on to say, Thou shalt bruise his heel. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Therefore, God promised a serpent crusher, a head crusher. Here was the promise of someone, obviously a mighty one, that would crush the serpent's head. In other words, this is the announcement of Satan's demise. So he knows, and he's known from that moment, that God was going to send someone to destroy him. So he's been at work ever since, in every generation. And if you haven't noticed, he's having a field day in this country and around the world. So, that leads us to the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. I will make of thee a great nation. This is a man that has no children. He's in his 90s. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. I will pour out my goodness upon you. And I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. One of the most important verses in the Old Covenant. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. This is the very doctrine 
that Paul unfolds in his letter to the Galatians and to the Romans. Justification by faith alone, not by works, but by faith. It doesn't say here, well, Abraham got good enough for God to save him. That's a demonic dream. We are saved one way and one way alone. It's set before us in the first book of the Bible by believing the word of God, specifically believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> Abraham said, a God said to Abraham, so shall thy seed be. It's like the stars of the sky. Another time he says, it's like the sands of the seashore. Now, God went on to say, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee. Now, a man with no children has got to be hearing this with wonder, with amazement. How are you going to do that? But he doesn't say, I don't get it. He believes God. He has faith in the living God. He believed what God said to him. So, he goes on. God says, I will make nations from of thee, and kings shall come from thee. Kings shall come out of thee. I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger. He's told him to leave his home. He's told him to leave where he grew up, Ur of the Chaldees, a completely uh, idolatrous place and he says thou shalt keep my covenant so he's promised him descendants and a land can't really have a nation without a land and so he says <clears throat> I'm going to give this unto you I'm going to give it to your seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger all the land of Canaan, all of it, for an everlasting possession. And then he tells him soberly, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. So, God promised these things to Abraham and his descendants, which would become a nation and a land for that nation and worldwide blessing to all the nations. The Apostle Paul said of that worldwide blessing, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. There's the theme again. Foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, all right, here's the Abra here is the gospel as Abraham heard it. In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now that doesn't sound like the gospel, does it? doesn't sound like the gospel to us. But God entirely meant 
for Abraham to believe those words. And he believed those words. And Paul, thousands of years later, said, when that was said to Abraham, God was preaching the gospel to him because the blessing for all the nations is Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> the sign of Abraham's covenant was circumcision for his physical descendants. And the sign for his spiritual children was faith. None of his descendants were ever saved just because they were in his bloodline. But all of his descendants and then later Gentiles would be saved by the faith of Abraham, that they would believe like Abraham believed God's word. We have the gospel in its clear manifestation, its glorious display in the scriptures. We see it in the gospel, the gospel of the God of grace. So, that brings us to the Mosaic Covenant. God promised him descendants, promised him a land, and promised worldwide blessing. Is that right? So what is the Mosaic Covenant? Why is it what it was? The Mosaic Covenant was a development of the Abrahamic Covenant. I might put it this way. It was an extension of the Abrahamic Covenant. In it, God gave Abraham's descendants the promised land so that they could be the nation promised in a land promised. <clears throat> So, that national homeland became Israel. And he gave them his law, which served as a constitution of that people for that land. It was the constitution in many ways. But simply for our purpose today... It was a constitution for just government, righteous, right government, and directions for worship. He didn't say, now, worship me, and any old idea you come up with, I'll just think is really wonderful. He said, no, I will be worshipped this way. One of the reasons we see the nightmare among many uh, American churches is they've they have utterly left the commands of God about worship certainly in the new covenant there is a refinement of things that were set forth in the old covenant but all of this was to keep a special people this constitution was to be a nation that was a witness to the world of the God who created it it was to be a witness to the nations to say, this is how you govern. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. I'm the one that determines what is righteous, not the way you feel. And this is the way you worship me. And my dear covenant people, when 
you do this, when you judge righteously, the world will sit back and say, oh, that's different than the way we do it. When you worship me as the one true living God, the nations around you will say, oh, we've got 5, 10, 15, 330,000 gods. They just worship this one God. They would be a witness that they were God's people. By the way, let me tell you, God's people are, listen carefully, supposed to be different. They are, I mean, one of the things that young people often fear and one of the ways that the enemy wedges himself right into their lives is they want to be accepted, they want to be cool, they want people around them to think, hey, you're wonderful when you join them. That will end in destruction. At the very least, it will greatly damage your witness as Israel's constant playing with other gods destroyed their witness to the nations. All of life was governed in Israel by God's righteous laws. God promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the same as the Abrahamic Covenant. Circumcision. That marked out the people from those around them. The Abrahamic Covenant developed to the Mosaic Covenant. Promise of a land, giving of the land. Promise of worship. A promise of a, a glorious people. That happened when they got in the land. They didn't do so well in the wilderness, if you remember. And they didn't do well after they got in the land for a while. Sounds like human beings, doesn't it? Sinful human beings. Well, that brings us to the Davidic covenant. Abraham developing into the Mosaic Covenant and that great nation of Israel. Within the Mosaic Covenant, God made a covenant with David, who was of the tribe of Judah. God said to him, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Now, we don't use that word the same way today. <clears throat> It will proceed from your body in the natural uh, procreation between man and woman. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen carefully. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. For those of you that have been with us, we learned that this was said in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, verse uh, 5, all of a sudden, the author of Hebrews is reaching back into the treasure store of the Old Testament scriptures and bringing them back for the ones to whom he is communicating. And he brings them and he applies them to Jesus. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And thine house, David, and thy kingdom shall be established forever. 
before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Do you understand that God's people are living under that holy, holy, holy son of David, Jesus Christ? He's seated on that glorious throne. He was enthroned. Resurrection, ascension into glory, and then enthronement. While Solomon partially fulfilled God's prophecy, especially in building the Jerusalem temple, Jesus Christ has been building the new temple, his people. Paul argues that in his writings. Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Ghost? Don't you know that you are where the Spirit of God dwells? Why does the Spirit of God dwell within us? Because God, John chapter 4 is seeking worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Peter calls us living stones in the temple of God. Jesus is building a different house for God. Solomon did okay, but that's gone. The temple being built now will never be gone. So, All of David's royal sons failed at some point in keeping God's law perfectly. Some were certainly much better than others. Some brought revival to uh, Judah. But some finally became so wicked that God cast Judah out of the promised land. That was one of the curses announced in Deuteronomy. So they were cast out of the promised land and, they, and God left them in captivity for 70 years. Now, while this looked to, to us, if we had been there, and it certainly looked this way to the Jews, this looked like the collapse of God's promise about that king, that coming king. We can imagine the darkness they felt being in Babylon away from the beautiful land that God had given them, being surrounded by pagans who were worshiping their foul and wicked uh, idols. Looked like it collapsed. But God's prophets, his wonderful servants, mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter, God's prophets continued to declare such extraordinary promises as this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Wait a minute, that was God's promise to David. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Well, that wasn't happening to Israel. So they kept waiting. They kept waiting. But it is there, is it not? 
upon the throne of David. That's the covenant. That's the promise that God made. And this is revealed in the New Testament. All the Old and the New Testament, too many theologies today cut off the Old Testament. They just go, and you hear it. You hear people say, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. You're not a New Testament Christian if you don't understand what the New Testament Christ, uh, scriptures are built on. The Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. How did they do that? Well, it's just law. Oh, no, it's not. It's a Christ book. He's everywhere throughout that glorious Old Testament. He's right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The one who's going to crush the serpent's head. But we need the light of the New Testament to help us understand very often what's being said in the, new, in the Old Covenant. So, this wonderful promise set forth uh, over and again through the prophets is revealed in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 declares... Behold, that means look. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, the angel said to Mary, and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. That precious name. He shall be great, listen carefully, and shall be called the son of the highest, God's son, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. That's why Matthew begins with a genealogy. And we see that Christ is one of David's sons way down the line. He's the one that's ultimately promised in the covenant. He's the only one that could fill, fulfill the, the promises of that covenant. Jesus. Jesus. In our culture, that's merely another word to swear. But he is the glorious, pure, holy, and righteous Son of God. Should be the sweetest name that we hear, and we should be deeply offended when people use his name. Put it in the category of the filthy things that they utter when they're angry. Or surprised, shocked. No, he shall be great, and he is great. And he shall be called the son of the highest. See that word son? That's the word. For those of you who've been here, that's the word we keep hearing in Hebrews 1. The son, the son, the son, the son is higher than the angels, greater than the angels. People virtually worship, worship uh, angels in our day. Of course, that's, that has gone on throughout the history of mankind. But the angels are not the Son of God promised in the Davidic covenant. So, that particular passage in Luke goes on to say, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's the promise. That's the covenant. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's the covenant. It's the Davidic covenant. Now that brings us to the next thought, which is from development, Abraham, 
Moses, David, to fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the new covenant. This is your Bible. It, it, it's, it's like a, the bud of a flower beginning to open up. From Abraham to Moses to David, the Old Testament covenants come to their glorious fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his blessed new covenant. <clears throat> it is not a covenant of circumcision. Abrahamic, Mosaic were covenants of circumcision. But it is a covenant of grace accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> On the day of Pentecost, Peter declared to the Jews, in the power of the Holy Spirit, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Now, why would he start with that? Because the Jews understood that God had made a promise to David that hasn't come to pass. They're still waiting for God to keep his word. Peter's telling them God has kept his word. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, as a prophet, spake of the resurrection of Christ, and his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up. We go into hospitals today and we see some of the amazing things that men can do for men and women. Or perhaps I should say that men and women can do for men and women. And we look at it and you hear people say, oh, it's a modern day miracle. It doesn't come close to God raising his son from the dead. We thank the Lord for all the technology that can be used to help us keep these bodies going, but they're going to die. God's glorious purpose was to raise up his son. And what looked like collapse, what looked like failure on God's part, is now being announced on the day of Pentecost by Peter to his fellow Jewish brethren. So, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now, everyone that was listening to him, this would go by us. It shouldn't, but it would go by most of us, is that God's law was that for anything to be affirmed, especially when you were saying someone had done something wrong, you had to have two or three eye and or ear witnesses. And he's saying, look, you hear all of us out here, by the way, you think we're drunk? 
9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. We are preaching to you the astonishing greatness and goodness of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. We're announcing to you the promise has come to pass. That's the kind of God we serve. Sometimes we have to wait a long time. It might not even be in our lifetime that we see some of the things that He's promised. But He is faithful. And we see that faithfulness here writ large. Therefore, now listen, this will sound familiar, especially to those of you that have been hearing these messages on Hebrews. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. Resurrection, ascension into glory, enthronement, being seated on the throne. David's throne. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yes, it's the verse being used in Hebrews. This was preached on that glorious day. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. What a picture. The enemies of God under Jesus' feet. That is the Davidic covenant fulfilled. This is the proclamation of the new covenant. This is Psalm 110.1 fulfilled. And later in Antioch of Pisidia, Paul preached God, he preached of God that he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, Paul, remember, Paul had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knew the scriptures. He knew the scriptures, and he's speaking to Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, and he's telling them their scriptures. He's just giving one of the most beautiful summaries of the Old Testament right here in short form. He said, Finding David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, a Savior, Jesus. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, in Christ, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain, crucified. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, you can imagine this, these people that were involved in crucifying Jesus 
were just doing what they wanted to do to get rid of a troublemaker. And yet all the time they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They were following exactly what their will desired and they were accomplishing exactly what God wanted. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Looked like it was over. Paul says, But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. We declare unto you glad tidings, good news. That's what the gospel is. Jesus didn't just die a failure on the cross. He looked like one, just like Israel being cast out of their land, Judah being cast out of the land. It looked like everything was finished. It was over. The promises all uh, fell apart. But God wasn't finished. And when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he didn't mean his ministry. It meant the work that God gave him to do to save his people from their sins. And that's why God raised him up. But you see, do you understand? When Paul said, God raised him from the dead, Jesus was conquering his enemies. He was conquering his enemies. And he's still doing that. Let everyone protest what they think about the foolishness and the idiocy of Christianity and believing that a man who died is now somehow running the universe. Fairy tales. They won't think that when they stand before him in the day of judgment. And neither will anybody here. God raised him from the dead. Those are some of the most important and glorious words our ears will ever hear. Because it's glad tidings. It's good news for us. Jesus conquered death. This is his work in this glorious new covenant. It's also written in the second psalm. Here they are plundering the psalms again. Written in the second psalm, which our author in Hebrews has already quoted. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Again, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement are all part of that this day. Have I begotten thee? It doesn't mean when he was born of the virgin. It means he is announcing that the God-man is now king of the messianic kingdom. And the day is going to come when that kingdom will come into fruition and we shall reign on the earth with him. Well, <clears throat> be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, 
that through this man, the one that was crucified, the one that is risen from the dead, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Wait a minute. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now we don't have the gospel veiled. We have it in the noonday sun, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're bringing you good news, he said. <clears throat> and by him, I say again, all that believe, all that repent of their sins and believe are justified. In other words, in God's courtroom, the great judge says, you are righteous. I need to be righteous. What about you? There's one way to have it. Believe on the crucified and resurrected Savior. That's what all these covenants were leading to. They are, if I can say it this way, they're kind of like the womb out of which Christ came. Promise, 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 promise fulfilled. Jesus has come. The law of Moses could justify no one because no one could keep it perfectly except one person, and that was Jesus Christ the Lord. That's why when he died on the cross, it was the most unusual death imaginable. It was for the billions and trillions of sins of people who repent and believe. He had no sin, and therefore he could become the sin-bearing substitute of all his people that's good news i need someone to deal with my sins he did god dealt with my sins and the sins of his people on the cross of calvary all of that came from the blessing to the world the worldwide promise to abraham and then later abraham moses david through david's line the son of David was hanging on that cross. The son of David is sitting on the throne. Amen. What glorious, glorious things these are. Okay, so my brethren, once again, in what Paul is saying, this is the Davidic covenant fulfilled. And it is the new covenant initiated in its saving power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation even Jesus brought Psalm 110.1 and the Davidic covenant to the Jews listen carefully Jesus asked the Pharisees what think ye of Christ whose son is he that's a question every human being on the planet needs to answer what think ye of Christ Everybody here today needs to be able to answer that question. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. The son of David. He saith unto them, 
How then doth David in spirit, in the Holy Spirit, as a prophet, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, David's Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Wait a minute. That's verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 1. Same verse being set before us. Oh, Psalm 110.1 is the most appealed to Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? There are times, even in this study, when I have said things that were something of a challenge to think through. And there was a reason for it. Jesus did it. It's right here in his Bible. He says to them, okay, how can he be David's Lord when he's David's son? How can that, how can that be? How can that be? They didn't have any answer for that. The Jews had no answer. How could someone way down the family line be David's Lord? If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. The answer is, Simple, if you believe who Jesus is. We, all believers, can answer Jesus' question. God the Father said unto his son, the God-man, sit on my right hand, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. So David's son, Jesus the Christ, enthroned in heaven, sits on the throne of David, as David's Lord. And this is the new covenant king reigning in redemptive glory. Jesus is not only David's Lord, he's Lord of this universe, he's Lord over everybody. He's Lord over Bill Gates. He's Lord over China. He's Lord over any and every breathing human being. There are those that bow to him in faith, and there are those that stand and despise him, either with their idols or with their atheistic unbelief. But Jesus is the Lord. God called him God, remember? The Son is the God-man, utterly unique. So, the new covenant king is reigning right now in redemptive glory. And that brings us to the importance of Psalm 110 to Hebrews. This is actually fairly brief. Verses 3 of chapter 1 and 13. Psalm 110 is first mentioned at verse 3. The resurrected and ascended Christ sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Then, in verse 13, in the context of a question, 
But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? There's that verse. There's that promise. There is Christ. Now, the question's important. Remember uh, a, a month or two ago? If you can remember that far back. We talked about something called an inclusio. For to which of the angels did God say? He said that at the beginning of this passage, verses 5 through 14. And then now, near the very end of it, he brings it up again. In ancient writings, they didn't have like subheadings. So they made particular literary points by repeating certain ideas. So they would have the idea here, and they'd also have the idea there. And that means pay attention to the things between the bookends. This is all one thought, one huge, glorious thought. So, and what does he do? He quotes the Psalms repeatedly and 2 Samuel 7.14, all of them that point to Christ and Christ as the God-man, truly God, truly man in one holy person. Well, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand? He never did. It was said and pointing, said about and said to the living Christ, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. No angel is the heir of all things. No angel made the worlds. No angel is the brightness of God's glory. No angel is the express image of God's person. No angel upholds all things by the word of his power. No angel purged us from our sins. And no angel sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. Until God's enemies are made the footstool of the triumphant royal priest and king. Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's go back to our earlier questions. Do we think about him like this? Oh, we should. Because the Bible sets him before us. It's just the Lord has given us this, this treasure from thousands of years ago that we have to go into and we have to get into the tunnels and dig deep. But as we start digging, oh, we find the glorious gold and silver and, and uh, diamonds and rubies and pearls and emeralds of Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 refers prophetically and directly to Christ Jesus. Jesus himself declared, as I said, in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is taken by the Holy Spirit through the human author and set down right there in what we call verse 13. And it's applied to Christ. And as we see in as as we see 
Hebrews unfolding, we'll see that verse 4 of Psalm 110 becomes prominent and shows Jesus as our priest, our king and our priest. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Holy Spirit repeats this five times in the epistle to the Hebrews. How important is that? Parents, do you have some children you have to tell something to over and over again? Why do you do that? Because you want them to know something. Something you want done or an attitude they need to fix or whatever. You repeat. Dad, you've said that before. Listen again. That's what our father is doing. This is my son. He is our great high priest. As our priest, he has saved us by putting away our sins in his shed blood. How do we get to God? None of us can, except through Christ. Amen. And that's why we have a priest. And that's why our hearts should rise up in prayer and praise and thanksgiving and wholehearted worship. I mean, when we gather, it ought to be like taking coal here and a coal there, another coal in the ashes, putting them together and blowing on them, and there's a, a firestorm rising up. Our worship should rise up to our great and glorious king and priest. So, the Holy Spirit repeats five times in the letter of Hebrews. Psalm 110 not only shows that Christ is superior to angels, but that it structures much of the letter, much of this sermon. Thirdly, the importance of Christ's enthronement. Finally, Psalm 110 focuses on two vital aspects of biblical Christology. For those of you that have not been with us, if you're not familiar with that word, Christology is the study of the person and his work of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. <clears throat> so the resurrected, ascended, and enthroned Christ is not only our king to rule us. He is our priest who continueth ever. In other words, he lives forever and hath an unchangeable priesthood. There's not going to be another one. It doesn't he won't rotate off. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Brethren, that's what you want. You don't want a quarter salvation. You don't want half salvation. You don't want 99% salvation. You want the uttermost. You want to be saved completely. You want your sins washed away forever. And that's in Jesus Christ, our great high priest and our king. Oh, there's so much of Christ in this book. I want to know Jesus. Submerge here. Don't come without prayer. Don't come without a heart seeking. But he saves to the uttermost. Them that come unto God 
by him. You repent of your sins and trust him, just like Abraham did. So let me make a couple of applications. Actually, there's more than two. Since you've got your outline, you can correct my, my math. Let me just say these again briefly. What have we seen? We've seen the promises of God unfold through the scripture that we might see who Christ is, what he is, who he is, what he's done, and how he saves us. Well, the first application is this. By God's grace and the Holy Spirit's guidance, we should carefully study and meditate on Christ in the Old Testament. And there's many helpful books out there. In fact, we have a free grace broadcaster, Christ in the Old Testament, recommended by one of our young people for that particular theme. It took me a couple of years to get there, but I got there. Read that. That's a good start. There are many books written on this. Or when you read through the scripture, when it says, as the prophets say, go back to the prophets and read and see why they said what they said when they said it. And see how the Holy Spirit interprets it for us in its application in the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, can be found throughout the Old Covenant and Old Testament scriptures. The riches of the treasures of Christ, especially the Psalms. In a certain way, we could call the Psalms the Old Testament Christ book. They're there for those who will seek him in prayer and study and meditation and above all, the light given by the Holy Spirit. You can't understand the scriptures without the Spirit. You can get all the age you want, but without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get what God is saying, what he means. Number two, Christ the reigning king is at work. He's ruling. He's advancing his kingdom and destroying our enemies. We don't have time to unfold that. But it's just the fact. Read the book. Read all the way to, to, to Revelation and then look how the Lord has dealt with his enemies. And he will continue to do so until he returns. Then he will deal with them in justice. Number three, Christ is the reigning king of all things. This should comfort us in our trials and in all things that we experience in this world. If I just look at the world and I know nothing of Christ, it is out of control. It, I mean, it's just like even people who are not Christians are looking at the world and going, this is like insanity. What is happening? But God's people can say, though I don't understand all the details of what's taking place, I know who reigns. And I know what he's going to do. And I know he'll deal with our enemies, even if he doesn't deal with them in my lifetime. No one gets away with anything. Nothing. Ever. Ever. Your deepest, darkest, hidden secret will be in the light of the day of judgment. What you want now is being saved to the uttermost. You want a priest that can do it. And he offered the sacrifice that can. And lastly, Christ as our everlasting priest has paid the penalty of our sins and his intercession preserves us, preserves us so that we persevere to life eternal. I did a message on that Wednesday. You can 
dovetail it into there. But it's just the fact. What God has done is a complete salvation, full and complete and by his free grace. It comes by believing Christ Jesus the Lord, trusting him alone for your righteousness, trusting him alone as the God-man who accomplished everything necessary to save us and keep us from our sins. Keep us for the glory. In fact, I can say it better. He's done everything necessary to save us from our sins and preserve us until that moment we enter the glory in which he now rules. So in God's glorious and eternal covenant of redemption, he has provided everything to save us until we enter heavenly glory. We will see the royal priest at the Father's right hand. He is conquering all his and our enemies. And the day is coming when we will see the war finished and Christ triumphant. He indeed is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen. Oh, my Father, no feeble, earthly human being can magnify the glory of Christ as he desires. I certainly cannot. But thy word sets forth that glory. Thy people have been fed the manna from heaven this morning. May we delight in what thou hast given us, and may we embrace it, may we devour it, may we digest it, and may we live on it. And now, O God, again I plead with thee, bless thy people. Take us today, the rest of this precious Lord's day, and may we spend it all on thee. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Brethren, please stand for the benediction. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Speaking of the new covenant, brethren, that's, that's the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go joyfully. In the name of Christ. <clears throat>